Greetings and welcome to episode 51 of Beyond Huaxia. I'm your host, Justin Jacobs. Today our topic is the Japanese invasion of Asia. We need to set the groundwork for the uh, uh, World War II in Asia. The actual fighting, the invasions of which countries, when did Japan go where, uh, why did they do it. Now, you've already been with me for a very long time on this podcast, so presumably you know that the way that I approach this is uh, topics like these... I don't do traditional military history. I, I see it as my job to lay out the larger circumstances and conditions that inform the decisions that lead to war. And I don't usually attach too much importance to the details of individual battles. Because clearly, if you're a soldier and you are involved in these battles or you had family members, that's a whole different way of approaching military history. Okay, In my world, there's no such thing, really, as a battle, the battle that turned the tide, a battle that changed the world, the battle that won this war for this country and whatnot. Um, I tend to see those sorts of statements as hyperbolic government propaganda intended to convince soldiers and their families and the general public that your sacrifices aren't in vain. Uh, from my perspective, you know, the bird's eye perspective, if we're not sort of in the trenches, literally or figuratively, um, you know, if it wasn't this battle, then it would have been the next one. Okay, if it wasn't the next one, it would have been the third battle. Uh, but the resources that the, the, the combatants have to draw upon, the larger political economic conditions, this ultimately determines who wins wars. Uh, you, no one just gets lucky and they're like, oh, the valor and bravery of our soldiers. We actually won a battle that we know we had no business winning. That doesn't really happen in history. Okay, a great example, the Battle of Stalingrad. Extremely important battle. And yeah, that is sort of what began to seriously undermine the German capability to wage a long-time war across Eurasia. However, the larger conditions which matter about the Battle of Stalingrad, again, if you're not a soldier whose life is on the line on the front lines, was Russia's ability to retreat inland through their massive territorial holdings, and forced the Germans into a quagmire and overextended supply lines during the winter. All right, and if Stalingrad actually fell, if the Germans actually succeeded in, in conquering Stalingrad, it, the big battle just would have been the next one inland. That wouldn't have been the end of, of the Russians. We, we, we would now just be talking about the Battle of Kazan, <laughs> all right, to, to take another major inland city further, further to the east. Okay, so... With that said, with that sort of my obligatory preamble that I often give to these topics, let's get in to the beginning of what is often referred to uh, uh, outside of Asia as World War II. Um, but usually within Asia and definitely within China, it's usually referred to as simply the Second Sino-Japanese War, um, which then uh, precipitates a chain of events that leads to Japan then realizing we can't isolate our interest in China from the rest of Asia because what we did in China uh, gives rise to a certain reaction among the other global powers. They respond to it, and then in response to their response, we have to invade other parts of Asia that are held by these global powers. Uh, so what really happens here is in uh, July of 1937, the Marco Polo Bridge incident it sets in motion a chain of events uh, that uh, uh, creates reactions among major global powers to what Japan is doing, and then that sort of forces Japan's hands to act in a uh, particular way. Okay, so let's begin uh, July 1937. Let's get to the quagmire in China, the quagmire that's going to bog the Japanese down in a very similar way uh, that the uh, Germans would end up bogged down in Russia. Okay, uh, what happens in July of 1937? It's known as the Marco Polo Bridge Incident for a bridge that was built uh, by the Jin Dynasty originally and then rebuilt or refurbished during the Qing Dynasty. It's a very old stone bridge. All right, uh, multiple arches, a very beautiful bridge as well. Um, and it's at this bridge or near this bridge 
that you get what's known as the incident, all right? The Marco Polo Bridge incident. And it's sort of a, a repeat of the Manchurian incident uh, uh, five years, uh, six years earlier. The Manchurian incident, cast your mind back to September 1931, um, in which you get sort of this uh, quote-unquote misunderstanding of who set off that bomb, who fired the first shot. Uh, well, no one can really figure out who it is. Uh, we now know it's the Japanese. Um, the two sides start firing at each other more. And before anyone has a chance to pull back, there's been too much bloodshed, too much firing, um, and the Japanese are able to use that as a pretext to then just keep going and put all their troops out um, and take over all of Manchuria. All right, very similar things going to happen with the Marco Polo Bridge incident. Japanese troops had moved 30 miles south of the Great Wall near Beijing. They are stationed just outside Beijing uh, amid a truce that they've signed with the uh, Chiang Kai-shek's Nationalist Party. Uh, Full-scale war begins... When you get a Marco Polo bridge incident, what essentially happens um, is that, uh, you know, I think it's a Japanese soldier uh, uh, goes out on reconnaissance or something. He doesn't show up for a while. There's suspicions that he's been shot by Chinese troops. Investigation is launched. Let us see where our, where our soldier is. The Chinese say no. And then someone, you know, shots are fired in the dark. Uh, you know, both sides then start getting suspicious of one another. The soldier who went missing ends up coming back. Uh, um, but then recriminations ensue, someone fires off some artillery back and forth. You know how this stuff goes, okay? Uh, it really doesn't matter in the end. Uh, uh, things go boom <laughs> near the Marco Polo Bridge in July 1937, and the Japanese are able to use this as a pretext to do what they always wanted to do, which is further sink their claws into China. Now, what's different this time What's different this time? This is why we get all-out war with China and not just, oh, okay, you're going to create your own little puppet state of Manchukuo and uh, we're going to be slightly diminished here to the south and we're going to try to consolidate our control over the rest of China and you've got that. All right, no. This time is different. Full-scale war begins when Chiang Kai-shek decides he cannot capitulate anymore to Japanese aggression without risking a coup d'etat among his own officers. Recall that just the previous year in 1936, Chiang Kai-shek had been kidnapped by his own officers during a trip to the central uh, city of Xi'an. He was in a resort, uh, in the mountainside resort of Xi'an, um, and he's kidnapped and held hostage and forced to say that uh, you will no longer try to exterminate the Chinese communists because uh, we, we, we need to start fighting the Japanese. And Chiang Kai-shek's position always was, we are not strong enough to fight the Japanese. It'll be suicide. Uh, we'll just go down in flames. Um, but we can attack the Chinese communists right now, and they are also sapping our internal strength and morale and leading to a civil war. So let's defeat the inner enemy first. And, you know, with Japan, we need help. We need international help. We cannot defeat them now. So we'll just waste all of our investments in training and munitions and tanks and all this sort of stuff. Uh, we need to wait till foreign countries like the America or Britain or France are also willing to help us with Japan. That's his strategic calculus. But now that he's been, you know, kidnapped <laughs> and his life threatened, he sees the situation somewhat differently. And he realizes, I don't want to go to war with Japan. I still know we can't beat Japan. I still know it's going to be basically suicide. But hey, I have no choice anymore. I really have to respond differently this time. I can't respond like we did to the Manchurian incident, which led to the break off of Manchuria in the form of Manchukuo. Uh, so this time, Chiang Kai-shek commits real troops. He commits his best troops, real substantial resources to battle. Um, there is a battle for Beijing. Yeah, um, and the Japanese, for the first time, even though they're, they're still going to win all of these battles, they are finding that they are confronting a qualitatively different foe than they've seen before. Why? Uh, why is Japan taken aback? Well, their prevalent view at the time was highly dismissive and scornful of Chinese fighting abilities. Okay, they said the Chinese, they're, you know, these are the Chinese. <laughs> These are the sick men of Asia. This is Japan's Orient. Uh, they're so far behind us. China's so backward. Um, you know, they, they, they can't possibly resist the, you know, the Japanese Imperial Army. We beat the Russians 30 years ago. The Russians. All right, look at our empire. Uh, the Chinese are the most pathetic of all the troops and countries in all of Asia. All right, there was a, a, a very 
uh, uh, obvious arrogance uh, to the Japanese high command and the soldiers that they inculcated this belief in uh, prior to the invasion in 1937. Okay, why are they going to be surprised? Well, because uh, uh, actually Chiang Kai-shek had been quite industrious over the past 10 years. If you cast your mind back, I forget what episode number it was, but it was the one, it was called the Nanjing Decade, probably 20, 20 episodes ago uh, by, by, by this point in the podcast series. Um, you know, during the Nanjing decade, from the establishment of the new nationalist government capital at Nanjing in 1927 until the outbreak of the Second Sino-Japanese War in 1937, Chiang Kai-shek's nationalist government had entered into a partnership with the Germans, uh, with the Germans, and this relationship with the Germans extended into the Nazi era in the uh, early to mid-1930s as well, in which the Germans said, we need raw materials to fuel our factories, our industrial munitions factories and whatnot, uh, to, to rearm for war in Europe. Europe. Um, where are we going to get that? Well, China's got tons of these raw, uh, raw resources, the minerals that we need, the strategic sort of, you know, those precious mineral resources. Um, and in exchange, we can sell some of our excess finished munitions and, pro and, and war products back to the Chinese. Works out quite well. And the, this, is a, this is also a very complimentary uh, relationship for the Chinese. And so for about 10 years, Chiang Kai-shek's military has actually been getting qualitatively better than it had been before. Uh, he, had, he, had, he already had Russian advisors, Russian-trained officers and troops uh, in the uh, mid-1920s. That enabled him to embark on the northern expedition, defeat many warlords in the Yangtze uh, 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 Delta area, and establish his capital. Uh, but that's other domestic Chinese foes. Uh, now, he actually has a major Western power, albeit no longer an imperial power, but German officers have been training uh, 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 Chinese troops. Um, his officers have been getting uh, 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 German advice. He is purchasing German munitions, German weapons, German tanks. Okay, uh, Chiang Kai-shek is ready to fight. Even though he knows he's still not quite ready, uh, he thinks he needs a few more years to take on Japan. Uh, if he's forced to fight, it's not going to be like the Sino, uh, the first Sino-Japanese War in 1894 to 1895. Okay, um, and the Japanese are very, very surprised to find out that at each stage of the invasion of China, they're meeting real horrific resistance. Are the Chinese still losing five times as many soldiers as the Japanese are in each battle? Yes. Are the Japanese still dying in great numbers? Yes, and that is shocking to the Japanese. This was supposed to be a cakewalk. They decide, you know, very soon after uh, the summer 1937 uh, incident at the Marco Polo Bridge, uh, we're going to commit an overwhelming force of 200,000 troops to the Yangtze River area. That is the Nationalist Party stronghold. Uh, they have their capital at Nanjing in the south. Um, and we're going to just sweep through nationalist cities in uh, the Yangtze Delta area and destroy the Nationalist Party and Chiang Kai-shek's government in one fell swoop. Okay, they can't rule China. China is in a state of anarchy. This is the, the justification. Um, and then they have this really odd way of uh, uh, justifying what they're doing in China. One of the official reasons that Japan will give why they have to invade China is because Chiang Kai-shek is facilitating uh, the communist takeover of China. Somehow they see him as uh, uh, sympathetic to communists uh, when, in fact, his own generals kidnapped him because he wouldn't stop fighting communists. The Japanese will actually say uh, we're, one of the reasons we have to invade China is because, one, it's in a state of anarchy. Anarchy and there's no effective central government, and they can't safeguard the interest of foreign powers um, that they promised to safeguard because they're an anarchic, you know, pathetic country. And so we need to come in and look after our own interest on, you know, all for the benefit of China, of course. Um, and then the other reason is they say uh, because of this state of affairs, uh, communism is rising in China, and that is an, an ideology that we will not suffer to see take root anywhere in Asia, uh, most definitely not in China. Um, and of course, the huge irony in all of this is that it'll be the war with Chiang Kai-shek's Nationalist Party that'll pretty much destroy the Nationalist Party, at least its morale, its internal organization, its cohesiveness. And uh, ultimately, uh, uh, Chiang Kai-shek's Nationalist Party will lose the Civil War after 1945 as a direct result of being constantly bombarded and having to deal with the Japanese invasion. And that'll lead to the victory of communism, <laughs> you know, sort of the exact opposite of what Japan officially said it was doing. Unofficially, they just want to be able to dominate the resources of China and siphon it off for the benefit of the Japanese empire. 
Okay, so 200,000 Japanese troops are going to be sent down to sweep through the Yangtze River cities. Before long, uh, by, by the end of 19, the, the, uh, November, I believe it's October, November, and December of 1937, you are seeing horrific battles at Shanghai, at Nanjing, uh, further up the river at Wuhan. Um, the battle in Shanghai is uh, sort of like, you know, I mean, it's the equivalent of street fighting, sandbags in the street, uh, Japanese Marines invading the city, uh, pitched battles in tight quarters and whatnot. I mean, it is a horrific battle for Shanghai. Um, and the Japanese lose far more soldiers than they expected to lose. Um, then you go to Nanjing. We have a whole uh, episode later on in which we're going to talk about the massacre of Nanjing, uh, which it seems like we can only really explain uh, by the fact that, if we can explain it at all, that it was symbolic. Uh, the Japanese, by this point, after they took Shanghai, at much higher casualty rates than they expected. Uh, Nanjing was next in line. One, perhaps they're taking out their frustrations on Nanjing. And two, uh, Nanjing is the capital of the nationalist government, so it perhaps has extra symbolic value um, and you take out your you know your real anger and make an example of Nanjing uh, but you know uh, we'll explore that in a little more detail on the episode on the massacre at Nanjing but regardless at each of these locations the Japanese uh, high command and soldiers are shocked by the skill the tenacity and the resources of their Chinese foes which as we said are now German trained and armed this was supposed to be a cakewalk turned into a quagmire at each uh, uh, each city. Most demoralizing of all, Chiang Kai-shek's nationalist government refuses to surrender. The Japanese really believe that. They really believed that after one or two battles, after we take Beijing, Shanghai, possibly Nanjing, that'll be it. All right, uh, uh, some rousing, sweeping victories. Uh, we're going to crush their morale. Uh, and once we take their capital, they're going to crumble. They're going to sue for peace. They're, they're going to surrender. Um, and then we'll be able to reorganize China's government uh, and we'll have all the power. Okay, they really thought that was going to happen. Um, however, like with Russia, with the Germans in Russia, uh, Chiang Kai-shek, he says, there's no way in hell we're surrendering to these assholes. Are you kidding me? The Japanese have been bedeviling China for my entire political career. Uh, they just withdraw further into the interior. Uh, sapping Japanese morale after they lose Shanghai. Well, they don't really retreat. They, they do. They have to defend Shanghai, retreat, regroup at Nanjing, the capital. When they lose Nanjing, they retreat to Wuhan. There's a battle of Wuhan. When they lose Wuhan, they just keep going further west up the Yangtze River until eventually they settle at the city of Chongqing. Uh, Chongqing will be the wartime capital where the Nationalist Party will, 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 will be located for, I believe, about seven years until the war is over in 1945. Um, and Japanese planes will be able to reach Chongqing and bomb it from the air every once in a while, uh, but they never actually are able to get that far inland with their supply lines to have a proper invasion of Chongqing. And if they did, Chiang Kai-shek just would have retreated somewhere else. He would have retreated to Tibet or something. I don't know. Uh, but he was not going to surrender. And he said, you know, sooner or later, Sooner or later, uh, you know, the Americans will join the war, the British will join the war, and that'll start turning the tide um, against the Japanese. He gets very distressed when he learns that the Russians decide to sign a non-aggression pact with the Japanese, because he was also hoping that the Russians might end up entering the war um, against uh, the Japanese as well. Now, um, the Japanese, uh, after they take these major cities and the nationalists retreat inland, uh, what will they actually occupy? They will occupy most of the major cities on the eastern Chinese seaboard. Okay, um, pretty much all of the major cities on the eastern Chinese seaboard, those are your ports that are going to allow you to send men, munitions, and whatnot from the colonies, from the Japanese home islands into China the quickest. They will have uh, uh, many inland cities also, large cities they will have. Um, they will have uh, a, a control over transportation lines, which are chiefly railways at this point. Okay, what they will not have, generally speaking, is rural territory or, you know, sort of any major city kind of, uh, you know, more than halfway up the western end of the Yangtze River. It's kind of difficult to visualize this if you don't have a map in front of you. But if you sort of look at, you know, Chongqing, um, look on a map where that is, uh, Xi'an, these areas, these are major cities that the, that, 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 that the Japanese will not be able to fully control throughout the war. They also will have virtually no rural territory whatsoever outside of Manchukuo. 
They will try to take rural areas. They will uh, march through rural areas and temporarily sometimes they'll hold a lot of rural territory, uh, but they generally don't occupy it permanently. Okay, um, and sometimes when there are rural areas, they'll have to deal with guerrilla warfare, sometimes from the communists, although not nearly as often as the communists would like everyone to believe, uh, but oftentimes from, you know, various types of just local Chinese militias as well. Um, they will encounter significant resistance in the rural areas for the next eight years. Chiang Kai-shek's Nationalist Party will bear the brunt of Japanese offensives. Okay, um, they, as I mentioned in the episode back when we were on the China episodes, you know, 20 episodes ago or whatnot, um, you know, the, the, the official line that most people towed after World War II was that Chiang Kai-shek's party was corrupt uh, and he held back his forces to fight the communists after the war and didn't fight, fight the Japanese at all. And the communists actually did fight the Japanese. And so they, 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 they were able to gain the true support and, uh, you know, admiration of the Chinese people and this swept them to victory after 1945. Um, many historians now have been doing more research into what actually happened, the engagements, the actual fighting that took place, and we now know beyond a doubt that it's exactly the opposite. Don't you love it when what we think was true it turns out to be exactly the opposite? It turns out uh, that the communists fought one or two traditional overland engagements with the Japanese, got their asses whooped, and realized very quickly, <laughs> we're not fighting the Japanese. Are you kidding me? That, that, that is a recipe for suicide. Let's sit back in our rural area. They're in Yenan. You know, they're ensconced in a rural North China area uh, where the Japanese can't really get us. We, we can easily defend this land. Um, let's hone our rural re uh, land reform policies, gain some support in the countryside, uh, uh, strengthen our party's in internal discipline and morale. Uh, Mao Zedong consolidates his power and the communists go from, you know, less than, you know, 10,000 people and uh, at the end of the long march in 1935, I believe, it is um, to over a million party members, you know, with you know highly disciplined chain of command. Mao, you know, already has a cult of personality by the end of World War II. Uh, they are ready to fight the nationalist. On the contrary, the nationalist um, will be fatally weakened by having to fight the Japanese for eight years. And it turns out they really did fight the Japanese. <laughs> they really did uh, send their, their their best soldiers into battle. Chiang Kai-shek didn't say, oh, wait, all right, the German trained soldiers, the German weapons, all that sort of stuff, the German tanks and everything. Uh, let's hold those back because we need those to fight the communists. No, he sent those out to fight the Japanese. He knew he couldn't pussyfoot this anymore. He knew he had to show, I defend China. Therefore, I deserve to rule China. Uh, the, the communists had the luxury of sitting back and said, hey, we're not the official government of China. <laughs> uh, we just have a temporary truce with Chiang Kai-shek uh, because we have to unite against the Japanese. Uh, but we're not the official government, you know. Uh, so we don't, you know, we can kind of sit back here and do our own thing. The onus is on Chiang Kai-shek to fight and defend China. And he actually does. Um, you know, living in Chongqing for eight years, being uh, air raid bombs and whatnot, inflation, almost no resources. This gives rise to massive corruption within the, the uh, Nationalist Party. Morale and uh, discipline is totally destroyed. Chiang Kai-shek uh, loses his original base of support and control in the Yangtze Delta area, his financial center of Shanghai, his political center of Nanjing. They have to conscript new soldiers from the Sichuan countryside, which which, uh, you know, are an alien population to him. Uh, it's very difficult to do this. The, sol the quality of the soldiers just absolutely plummets, and he sends his German investments into battle, where they fight admirably and kill a lot of Japanese, but ultimately they go up in flames. Chiang Kai-shek even sent his best fighting forces, his last remaining German-trained soldiers, um, uh, units, to the Burma Theater. Once Japan invades Southeast Asia, uh, he felt, I'm the, I'm the internationally recognized government of China. I have an obligation to support, to respond to the British and the Americans when they say, hey, we're fighting the, you know, your enemy, your chief enemy. We're, 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 we're fighting them now in Burma. Are you going to contribute anything? And he says, I have to. Or else, you know, how can I be a wartime ally of these guys? They're not going to respect me as, uh, you know, one of the global leaders of the world during this war. And so he does. He actually backs up that obligation by sending his last remaining German investments to the Burma Theater, where once again, they go up in flames. Okay. Um, so the irony here. 
uh, is that Japan actually facilitates the destruction of the party, Chiang Kai-shek's Nationalist Party, that was about to make China strong and had made you know, uh, very encouraging inroads into unifying China over the past uh, 10 years, uh, while it ends up facilitating the rise of the party that they are irreconcilable to their ideology, ideologically irreconcilable to the communists, uh, which Japanese leaders see as anathema. All right, it's no surprise that after 1949, when the, um, uh, the uh, um, uh, Chinese communists come to power, um, you know, Mao pretty much tells the first unofficial cultural delegation of uh, Japanese who, who visit him in Beijing, he pretty much says, you know, if it wasn't for you, we never would have won the war, <laughs> right? We never would have won the war if it was for you. He, he admits that himself, uh, that uh, Chiang Kai-shek only fell because he was the face of China and had to fight the Japanese in a way that the communists did not have to fight them for eight years, okay? Meanwhile, Japan begins to unveil its uh, new order in East Asia. There's going to be many different slogans that they're going to start trotting out. But now that they've invaded China, all right, this is sort of the point of no return at this point. All the other territorial acquisitions uh, were, you know, had sort of limited aims. They were uh, very well defined. You knew what you were doing when you got into it. You had an end goal. Where, you know, we take Taiwan as the end result of the first war with Japan. Very clean break. Uh, Korea, a little more messy, but ultimately we're going to annex it. That was always the goal, and it's a you know fairly well-defined peninsula. Uh, Manchukuo, you, you separated that and turned it into a puppet state. Micronesia, we took what the Germans had. Most of these were fairly clean acquisitions on paper. This is, this is qualitatively different now. All right, you've invaded China, and there's no end in sight. You don't know where this is all leading. You thought they would surrender, and you'd create another Manchukuo or something, and they didn't. Uh, so you need to start uh, trotting out some new ideologies to justify what you're doing, what's going on, rapidly uh, evolving developments that you didn't anticipate. And with the invasion of China and the realization that they're not going to capitulate right away, Japan, Japanese leaders start rolling out some, uh, some you know, experimenting with new ideologies. Uh, and the new one is called the New Order. Uh, the first one is called the New Order in East Asia in 1938. Uh, it's the idea that we're going to create a new Japanese-led federation of uh, uh, nominally independent puppet states throughout Asia and throughout China. And China is going to be one of the first places that they do this. All right, Where we're going with this is the Greater East Asia Co-Prosperity Sphere Discourse, which is still a year or two away. Uh, but we see its first inklings with the invasion of China. The highest profile projects that are going to be advertised to the world, this is what's going you know, to happen. Uh, remember, Japan can't just say we're invading China and destroying the Chinese nation. Uh, you can't justify warfare uh, aggression in those ways anymore, right? Uh, you have to say we're doing this on behalf of the Chinese people. You have an evil government that is not looking after your best interests. It's backward. It's corrupt. It facilitates the you know the evil ideology of communism. You need the more enlightened, advanced Japanese to come in and put your affairs in order. Put your house in order. Um, and we said you know they said we've already put your house in order by liberating the the poor oppressed Manchus um, to create the 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 glorious state of Manchukuo. Um, all right, that was our our first example of how we're going to redefine China. Um, now, when you've invaded and uh, destroyed the, na the nationalist government at Nanjing, you're going to, you, you, you can't just say this is a new part of the Japanese empire. Okay. Um, you have to create a puppet government of China and the official name for this new government will be the reorganized national government of China with its capital at Nanjing. All right, you have to have a pretense that 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 that, that puts a positive spin on what you're doing. Uh, we're helping the Chinese achieve a more prosperous China, and it's not ruled by by Japanese. They don't install a military governor, a governor general, in Nanjing. They find the highest ranking nationalist diplomat who is willing to work with the Japanese and install him as the head of the reorganized national government of China. A great. Jeopardy question for history of Asia. Beyond, we should have a Beyond Hwasya Jeopardy show. Wouldn't that be great? Uh, Jeopardy questions specifically uh, uh, tailored to the content of these episodes. That would be cool. Anyways, if you said, uh, who is Wang Jingwei? <laughs> then you are correct. Uh, Wang Jingwei, basically the number two man in the Nationalist Party. Um, Long had been uh, 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 engaged in tensions with Chiang Kai-shek, who was going to be the leader of the party. 
And because Chiang Kai-shek uh, sort of ha uh, ruled over the military arm and had the top loyalty of the military officers, he was always able to outmaneuver Wang Jingwei. But Wang Jingwei always had ambitions to sort of push the Nationalist Party in his direction. Uh, Wang Jingwei often liked to say that he was more progressive than Chiang Kai-shek. He had more of a vision of social reform, whereas Chiang Kai-shek was getting conservative and reactionary. And he was more on the uh, right side of politics. And Wang Jingwei is more to the left. Um, so Wang Jingwei way then uh, decides he's going to buy into the Japanese discourse about a new order in East Asia. Uh, they are someone who has a vision for reorganizing China, um, and I'm going to lead that. Now, uh, in theory, Wang Jingwei controls all of China from Nanjing as part of the reorganized national government of China. In reality, he only has symbolic control over a small swath of occupied Japanese territory. And it's purely symbolic control, okay? Uh, the only substantive work he's able to carry out is mundane daily administrative stuff. Any big decision, he's basically a rubber stamp for what the Japanese want to do, okay? Uh, Wang is a very complex figure who has not gotten a fair shake among historians, either outside of China or inside of China. Uh, fortunately for him, he died of illness in 1944. He went to Tokyo to have his illness cured, um, and he died there. Uh, otherwise, he almost certainly would have been executed by Chiang Kai-shek for collaboration with the Japanese after the war was over. Um, but like I said, we are still waiting for a, a complete uh, you know, unbiased uh, biography of Wang Jingwei. Uh, he continues to be ritually excoriated and vilified in uh, Chinese scholarship, and Westerners haven't really done a whole lot to, to change that narrative either. He is basically the most famous and odious collaborator of the 20th century because he decided to work with the Japanese. Um, I think he's probably a far more complex character, and he realized that this is a way to achieve some of my personal career ambitions while at the same time, maybe like Pui, he thought that the Japanese would be different in practice, and maybe once the war is over, he'll be able to carve out some autonomy um, and do some some uh, you know admirable things that don't just serve Japanese interests. We don't know because no one's really done an in-depth biography of him. Nevertheless, he is the face, uh, the official face. Just like Pui is the face of Manchu Kuo, a Manchu, you have to get a Chinese guy who has some sort of past political legitimacy to be the face of Japanese rule in the rest of China, wartime occupied China. And Wang Jingwei is about as good as it gets from the Japanese perspective. You're not going to get Chiang Kai-shek, uh, but you got his number two man. Wang Jingwei was huge. He was way up there. Now, um, so that's about all I'm going to say about the war in China. Like I said, I don't do military history, individual battles and whatnot. All you need to know from the bird's eye perspective, it's a quagmire, <laughs> okay? It's miserable. The Japanese, you know, we take a few towns today, we lose a few towns tomorrow, overextended supply lines, drags on, okay, drags on. Um, and, uh, you know, that's pretty much the main takeaway point that you need to know is that uh, Chiang Kai-shek's not willing to surrender. He has lots of land that he can retreat to. Um, and uh, Japan has to keep on fighting and be bogged down in China. And this is going to be a big problem for it when it starts to get involved with wars with other major powers. Uh, you know, China by itself they probably could have handled. If they didn't have to deal with anything else, they probably would have eventually been able to conquer China. Um, but they have to deal with a lot else um, that eventually is going to uh, undermine and uh, fatally ha handicap their efforts on the Chinese mainland as well. Now think about this again. Had Japan not suffered unconditional surrender, which largely is imposed upon it, not by China, but by the other powers that joined the war uh, a few years later. Had they not suffered unconditional surrender, um, they might have been able to salvage much, or at least some, of what they had done in China, what they had taken in China. Uh, again, counterintuitive what-if history. Uh, it's, a, it's a dangerous, risky enterprise. But nevertheless, uh, just kind of throw that bone out there for you to chew on. Uh, it seems transparently, transparently cynical in hindsight. Okay. Um, however, remember, Moscow, they had a transparently cynical initiative in Mongolia as well, which at the time was so obvious the Russians are, quote-unquote, liberating the Mongols from oppressive Chinese rule, and Mongolia was not truly, I mean, it was technically independent, but it was just a satellite puppet state of the Russians until the Soviet Union fell in 1991. I mean, it was totally cynical, um, and it's so obvious to see what the Russians are doing. But again, because the Russians won, uh, they're on the winning side in World War II, they get to naturalize it. They don't lose Mongolia. 
the Japanese have to lose Manchukuo, but they're created on basically the exact same principle. Um, and if Japan had somehow not faced unconditional surrender, who knows what would have happened uh, with Manchukuo uh, and with the, the uh, reorganized government, uh, reorganized national government of China with Wang Jingwei. All right, just throw that out. Uh, there is a legacy of the Manchukuo uh, being taken back by the Chinese after 1945. Um, it's that the Manchus would be the only re uh, recognized ethnic group uh, that the communists would recognize uh, in the 1950s. They, they'll have a new ethnic classification scheme, which we talked about many episodes ago. Um, and uh, as a result of the legacy of Manchukuo, using a minority group in China as the basis to cut off a huge chunk of Chinese territory and give them a state that bears their name as a, as a so-called national liberation movement, Manchukuo will be so traumatizing to Chinese intellectuals and politicians, that the Manchus will be the only ethnic group that gets official recognition as a legitimate ethnic group. They're one of 55 non-Han minority groups that the state will officially recognize uh, uh, in, in the uh, mid-1950s. They're the only one of those 55 groups that will get no autonomous region or county of any sort whatsoever. All right, you know, you've heard like, you know, the Uyghur Autonomous Region, Tibetan Autonomous Region. Uh, there's also, uh, you know, the Miao Autonomous County, um, you know, the Kyrgyz Autonomous County. Uh, there's various administrative levels of this uh, 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 local autonomy system, ethnic autonomy system. Now, you're, you know, right now you're saying, but there's no real autonomy. You're right, there is no real autonomy. It's basically on paper only. Uh, nevertheless, it is interesting to note that every other ethnic group will get some sort of plot of land that bears their name in which on paper it says you are autonomous, you rule themselves, even though you really don't. Uh, they will not even give that false autonomy to the Manchus uh, in Manchuria uh, because there's no way that they're ever going to give the slightest kernel of a pretext to recreate Manchukuo because that is one of the biggest scars of the 20th century is what the Japanese did uh, in Manchuria, uh, um, you know, and so the, the Manchus get no autonomy, you know, there's no autonomous Manchu county, no autonomous Manchu province or any or region or anything of the sort. Um, and that's an interesting uh, fun fact, not really fun, uh, unfun fact of the legacy of Manchu Kuo after 1945. All right, now what about the rest of Asia? There's more to the World War II in Asia than China. Um, and here's how we see that what they do in China um, which was inevitable, you know, I mean, it was inevitable that something was going to happen in China sooner or later. Um, the status quo couldn't go on forever like that. Uh, Japan was the new northern hybrid state. They were the new equivalent of nomads coming in from the north, trying to harness the resources of the heartland uh, to sustain the rest of their empire elsewhere. Uh, sort of the Japanese as a long legacy of northern conquerors trying to get access to the uh, uh, wealthy Chinese heartland. Um, but what they do there Unlike with nomads in the old days, um, th th this has consequences uh, throughout the rest of Asia that other global powers will respond to, um, and that will ultimately uh, 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 take Japan down. The push for self-sufficiency will force Japan to confront the European maritime empires. This is the hardest fight, and they've been trying to avoid it as long as humanly possible. Previously, Japan had only had territorial conflicts, had only gone to war with China and Russia. All right, that was the inner ring of the Japanese empire. Hokkaido, Okinawa, Taiwan, Korea, Manchuria. German South Seas was sort of an exception. There was no actual fighting there. They didn't fight the Germans, okay, even though that is a, a European empire, uh, even more so than the Russians. They didn't actually fight the Germans. Now, the need for Southeast Asian natural resources will prompt a direct conflict with the, you know, the heavy hitters, the United States, Great Britain, Australia, and the Dutch. Okay, this is a qualitatively different scenario, as most top-level Japanese diplomats openly acknowledge the United States and Britain are the two greatest powers in the world. Picking a fight with them is not the same as picking a fight with China or Russia. Okay, um, so where is the conflict going to occur? Um, as Americans, we're often trained to think of World War II in terms of Pearl Harbor. Ah, this nefarious, insidious, cowardly surprise attack on Pearl Harbor, and that started it all. 
We need a little more background, all right? That's why you can't just focus too much on the, 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 the nitty-gritty logistics of individual battles, all right? Pearl Harbor is part of a much larger strategic plan in which Japan's empire clashes with the American and the British and the Dutch empires, okay? Um, and the clash occurs in Southeast Asia as a result of Japan's maneuverings in China after 1937, Okay, previously, Japan's inroads to Southeast Asia were mostly economic, not political. Okay, you didn't actually formally try to exert control over Southeast Asia. The Dutch have Indonesia, the French have Indochina, Vietnam, Cambodia, Laos, the British have Burma, India, all right, Malaysia, um, you know, Papua New Guinea, we talked about that as well. Um, but now, in the 1930s, even before you did that stuff in China, the Western powers are in full protectionist mode, okay? Exacerbated by wartime economies that are going to arise towards the end of the decade. Uh, the Western powers are less willing to, send Japan, uh, to sell Japan what it needs to keep its industrial war machine going. Uh, so Japan's going to need to take this stuff for itself. And as a result of what Japan did in China after 1937, their aggression in China, the United States will impose additional economic sanctions. Not only are we not willing you to sell you the important natural resources that you desire, okay, we're also going to impose economic sanctions on you as a result of what you've done in China. 1932 Manchukuo, 1937 War with China. So how are you going to get these metals and minerals? Well, the Japanese are trying to make massive investments in Southeast Asia. Okay, they need iron ore, they need tin, they need rubber, they can get that from Malaysia. They need coal, they can get that from French Indochina. They need oil, nickel, tin, rubber from Dutch Indonesia. Oil from the United States. Tungsten from the Philippines, that's run by the Americans. Tin, rubber from Thailand. This is all fine as long as you have wide open markets and everyone's, you know, okay with you trading with them. Uh, but now, now that they're starting to get hostile with you and say, hey, we don't like what you did in China. We don't like what you did in Manchukuo. We're not going to fight you. We don't want a war with you, but we got to do something or else we're completely toothless. They start imposing economic sanctions and Japan starts realizing, uh, you know, the prospect of these empires denying us access to all these natural resources in Southeast Asia is very real indeed. And the more we go into China, the more likely it is we're going to lose access to all of this stuff. Okay, Their original vision, Japan's original vision, was that if we don't actually end up going to war with the Western empires, then we can use Southeast Asia as sort of an open market where it supplies the raw materials, the raw natural resources that we can then use in our Northeast Asian factories, Manchuria, Korea, Japan. Okay, um, But if those powers go to war with you or otherwise cut off your access to those Southeast Asian markets, you are in serious trouble. So, the armed takeover of Southeast Asia will come in several distinct stages. The first stage comes in 1940, and it's actually an ironic inversion of uh, Japan's acquisitions and actions during World War I. Uh, instead of taking over German colonial holdings like it did in 1914 with Micronesia, Japan will instead take over the colonies of those states in Europe that Germany has conquered and that have colonies in Asia. It's this really ironic inversion of what happened in World War I. You take the colonies of, of Germany in World War I, now you're taking the colonies of the European states that Germany has conquered. Um, and now also at the same time, Japan says, um, we're going to uh, renounce our, um, I'm sorry, uh, Germany uh, renounces their alliance with the Chinese. Remember, they had that close military economic relationship for about 10 years. Um, and Germany and Japan realize that they are natural bedfellows in here. Germany realizes that Japan's stronger in Asia. And when conflict breaks out with the Chinese, they side with the Japanese. And for the Japanese, this is useful because when uh, Germany starts conquering other powers, they can then take over the colonies of those European powers. Okay. Uh, Germany um, is a, an ideal ally for Japan now, uh, along with Italy, because they don't have any Asian colonies. Uh, Germany lost its Asian colonies after World War I. So what colonies have become vulnerable uh, with the German uh, invasion of Europe that began in September 1939? Uh, French colonial holdings and Dutch colonial holdings, the Dutch from the Netherlands. 
Okay, um, so what are you going to do here? The takeover of Indochina occurs in 1940, um, and uh, what happens is again, Japan. In each case, they have to make it look like they're not actually invading a country for their own uh, selfish gain. You have to make it look like um, you are liberating these people from oppressive rule, either other outsiders or their own corrupt native rulers. Um, and we're going to make your government better because we're the most advanced Asians, and we know how to do this, and we're going to do it altruistically on your behalf. Oh wow, you know, aren't we wonderful? Um, so, how do you get into Indochina, which is essentially Vietnam, Cambodia, and Laos? Uh, well, the French have that. Oh, the French have been defeated by the Germans. Paris has been occupied. Well, isn't that convenient? The puppet government that is set up in France is known as Vichy France. Okay? And that's essentially a puppet government of Germany. So, what Japan will do is they will t uh, negotiate a new political orientation of French Indochina by working together with Vichy France to say we're going to negotiate with the only legitimate government of France, which from our point of view, because we're allied with Germany, is the Vichy government. So Japan maintains the illusion that the uh, Vichy French government is still in control in their colonial holdings in Southeast Asia. However, they're able to negotiate for the Japanese military to be stationed throughout Vietnam, Cambodia, and Laos, wherever they think they have a strategic need. Remember, this is very strategic land, because if you go north from French Indochina, you are in China, <laughs> okay? Um, and you're in the areas, actually, where Chiang Kai-shek's Nationalist Party has retreated. They make their base in Chongqing, which is much further north, but they also have influence and set up universities and various, you know, factories and whatnot in uh, Kunming and the province of Yunnan, and Yunnan directly borders Southeast Asia, uh, French Indochina. Okay, uh, so you can see from Japan's perspective, this is a great backdoor to get even closer to where the uh, Chinese have retreated um, on mainland China. All right, uh, so they get fabulous economic concessions for French Indochina. They get the right to station their military throughout uh, French Indochina. Um, and they also are able to uh, launch an invasion of southern China from northern French Indochina. I think it's from Vietnam um, in order to ensure that there's no supply lines that can send aid to the Nationalist Party uh, from anywhere in Southeast Asia. Okay, so technically... French Southeast Asia, French Indochina, does not become a formal colony of the Japanese. All right, they maintain the illusion of Vichy French colonial control. Uh, but that's a puppet of the Germans, and by extension, it becomes a puppet of the Japanese. Okay? This is all this is complex, right? And it's like, you know, uh, colonial rule mediated through three intermediaries. <laughs> I understand it's kind of complex to keep this all straight, uh, but you have to maintain appearances. All politicians know you have to maintain appearances or you give your enemies an additional opening to attack you with and drum up support uh, uh, to, to, to take you down. Now, the Dutch East Indies, this is the Netherlands, this is the Dutch, they have Indonesia, uh, many of the Indonesian islands until you get to Papua New Guinea. Okay, uh, not going to have a formal takeover here, uh, but the Netherlands have been compromised significantly by uh, the German invasion of their country in Europe. Um, and so the Japanese feel bold enough now to give the uh, Dutch colonial government in Indonesia uh, uh, an ultimatum. Uh, to start providing us with as much oil as we demand uh, at very favorable rates, or we might have to take over the country. Now, even the Dutch colonial government here is still resists. Okay, They don't feel quite as compromised as the French, and they think this is a ruinous relationship with the Japanese. Uh, nevertheless, you can see the Japanese are starting to get a little bit more bold with the Dutch uh, when, they have been, when their, their power has been compromised within Europe. Also by this time period, by about August 1940, the Japanese start to uh, 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 publish their first coinages of the phrase, the co-prosperity sphere. This is going to be their idea. Once you've started to gain a lot of influence, now you've got big chunks of China. Um, you're, you're established now in Southeast Asia. You can see that you might be established in Indonesia one day. Uh, this is a, you know, a huge multiplication of the amount of territory and people that you uh, potentially have under your control and the resources that you have. You need a, a new discourse that can potentially appeal to everyone in Asia and make the empire look like uh, a, 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 a 
ideologically homogenous whole. Everyone's here for a common cause. What is sort of an ideological umbrella that can encompass everyone in Asia? Uh, and they're starting to come up with the idea of what they'll call the Greater East Asian Co-Prosperity Sphere. Um, note how, they, how they, they still anchor it in East Asia. They don't say the Greater Asian or just the Asian Co-Prosperity Sphere. Uh, greater East Asian Co-Prosperity Sphere. A recognition that it's still, you know, the most advanced Asians still come from East Asia. <laughs> okay, it's still the Japanese. It's a way of saying the Japanese. Uh, this empire is based in Japan, uh, but we're going to call it Greater East Asia. Um, and it's for everyone's benefit. Co-prosperity. This is why you should get on board. Asia for the Asians, not European rule. Uh, this will be a very attractive ideology, as we'll see. Uh, you, it, some people see right through it, and they see that it's cynical. You just say, "Hey, you're replacing one, you know, for outside ruler for a new outside ruler." And even when the Jap you know, if you know that the Japanese often think of themselves as white, then you just you know, you could also sort of cynically say, "It's just one white ruler exchange for another." Uh, nevertheless, there will be many. Many Asian elites, like Wang Jingwei, we just talked about, um, who will say, you know what? This is a progressive discourse. Yeah, Japan uses it for their own ends, but this is an outside power coming in, kicking out the long-standing colonial power of the white folks, who we never thought we would be able to defeat and kick out of our country. The Japanese have kicked them out of our country and bring a lot of resources to our country. They're investing in things. True, they're investing in their ability to win the war right now. But hey, if we help them win the war and this war doesn't drag on, this could be a beneficial relationship in which we could overturn the status quo, get rid of the foreigners, and then eventually keep the Japanese at arm length but still benefit from some of the resources that they bring in. And many, many Asian educated young Asians, you know, were stirred by the idea that here is some here is an Asian, someone who you know ostensibly is kind of like us, uh, at least more like us than the white folks are, um, and they can kick the asses of the white guys. Um, that is inspiring. That will inspire many people, and they will gravitate towards the Japanese ideology. Many will eventually become disillusioned and say, "You're as bad, if not worse." than the Europeans and the Americans. Nevertheless, there will be an attraction, a substantive attraction to the ideology of the greater East Asian co-prosperity sphere that the Japanese will peddle. The Japanese are bold too. The boldness of what they're doing oftentimes captures the Asian imagination. They even said that when we're done, Australia and New Zealand should be under Asian rule as well, not European rule, okay? Even as far as the white settler colonies. Now, that was the first stage of the invasion beyond China. You know, for stage one, China, 1937. Stage two, once Germany starts taking over the European mainland, you uh, uh, either seize the conquered mainland European colonies in Asia, or you start to, you know, become a bully uh, to other colonies like uh, Dutch Indonesia. Now we have, I guess this would be the third stage actually then if we're including China as the first stage, uh, this stage will occur in response to U.S. responses to what Japan has been doing. In response to all this, once they realize they've, they have, you know, preeminent influence in Southeast Asia now, they're bullying the Dutch in Indonesia, they've invaded China, the United States finally decides, all right, we need to act. Um, and in July 1941, the, uh, North uh, uh, the United States freezes Japanese economic assets in United States banks, financial institutions, institutes an embargo on all oil exports to Japan, and then Great Britain follows suit and abrogates all commercial treaties between uh, 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 British India and British Burma and Japan. Now, because we've already talked about the importance of Southeast Asian natural resources to the Japanese market, you should be able to understand the significance of these responses. They've uh, basically said, you can't get any resources from our colonial holdings anymore. Uh, Americans are saying you're going to be shut out of the Philippines. The British are saying you're shut out of India and Burma. Um, and we're going to start blocking you elsewhere, uh, where, wherever we can, with freezing bank accounts. You know, not we're, gonna, we're not going to sell you oil. At this point, Japanese leaders basically realize we have no choice but to take over Southeast Asia itself to replace the resources that these guys will no longer be willing to trade with us. Uh, there were we have internal documents in which Japanese leaders even 
reveal their deliberations where they where they where where they conclude that without access to uh, oil on uh, uh, you know British and American dominated global oil markets, if we can't access those markets, um, we, we cannot last more than two and a half years in peacetime and less than one and a half years in wartime. Uh, we need to act now. And they want to invade during the winter season. That's the optimal weather conditions for invasion. Uh, so, you know, you know, July July 1941 uh, uh, was when the United States and Britain decided to take action. Uh, December uh, 1941 is when they decide, all right, we're going to start here. All right. Uh, now, Pearl Harbor. Pearl Harbor. Again, if we don't have our myopic, uh, narrow, uh, tunnel vision, American vision of what this means for us, uh, you can see the backstory to it. It's not a nefarious surprise attack. It was a logical extension of uh, Japanese perceptions of their place in Asia and their access to resources. Remember that question I've talked about before, uh, Americans later on will be saying, what went wrong? All right. Uh, what went wrong? It seemed like it was so promising. Japan was becoming just like us. What went wrong where they would fight us? Nothing went wrong. It's one empire expanding its resources until it bumps up against the resources and holdings of other empires. And then they compete for those resources. And the result is World War II. All right. Nothing went wrong. It all makes sense when you understand all the variables that are in play. Pearl Harbor was not just to piss off the U.S. In fact, Japan knew that it was likely suicide bringing the United States into war. They did not want to go to battle with the United States. They knew that that's asking for trouble. Can you really beat the United States? Many Japanese thought, I don't think we can, even in the beginning. But now you have to. From their perspective, they've been backed into a corner. You're cutting us off from financial oil markets, and you're cutting us off from India, Burma, Philippines. Um, you're you're, you're going to try to stop us in Indonesia. Um, you don't approve what we're doing in China. Um, you know, we have no choice now. We need to go into Southeast Asia to sustain our empire, or it's all over. So we got to fight the United States. How you, how you going to fight when you know you have to fight? Well, let's take them by surprise. Uh, but the invasion of Pearl Harbor, the bombing of Pearl Harbor, was largely from a strategic point of view was to prevent the U.S. Navy from interfering with the Japanese takeover of Southeast Asia. Okay, Japan's own blitzkrieg will commence in tandem with Pearl Harbor. Okay, uh, for the next five months, Japan is nonstop invasions of Southeast Asia. Uh, from December 1941 until April 1942, Japan will manage to occupy and kick out the, the uh, European and American colonial leaders of Hong Kong, the Philippines, the Malayan Peninsula, Burma, the Dutch East Indies, that's Indonesia, and uh, other Southwest Pacific Islands, uh, often in Melanesia. They already have Micronesia uh, in Melanesia. Those would be some of the islands that then the Americans feel and the Australians feel like they have to retake in those brutal battles. Okay. Um, that's a stunning development. We focus so much on Pearl Harbor because we have, you know, vision that is, you know, we want to see ourselves. Um, Pearl Harbor, in that sense, was kind of a distraction uh, to make sure that the U.S. couldn't intervene with the Blitzkrieg of Southeast Asia. Okay, Thailand will be technically neutral, but as we'll see, they are sort of hostage to uh, Japan. They'll see a value in leaving them independent as long as they feel like uh, Thailand is not actively uh, uh, plotting against the Japanese. We have another episode later in which we'll go into what's going on in Thailand um, in more detail. Uh, it's technically neutral. Again, French Indochina is technically independent as well, but again, under heavy Japanese influence, essentially a colony. Okay. Um, the Japanese then also reveal a new blueprint for Asia after all of this. They say that uh, what we're going to do now that our, our vision for all of Asia has expanded accordingly, we have a greater East Asia co-prosperity guideline. Uh, they say, you know, let's plan to transfer Korea and Taiwan to the home ministry, prepare them to be treated like Hokkaido and Okinawa. Um, and sort of the inner ring of empire will uh, 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 be spread further out to encompass new territorial acquisition. And they say, what is going to be the next Taiwan and Korea, places in which we think these are suitable? 
for potential long-term assimilation. It'll say Singapore, Borneo, New Guinea, uh, Brunei, all the Malayan states. Uh, these are going to be places where they say, we think these can serve as the next Korea and Taiwan as Korea and Taiwan become fully assimilated uh, culturally, linguistically, politically um, into the Japanese empire. In other words, places with the most valuable strategic resources uh, will be slated to be most closely integrated into the Japanese polity. Uh, after all, 60% of all Japanese wartime investments will be in Malaya and in Indonesia. And these are the places that they say that's going to be the next Taiwan and Korea. So everywhere else pretty much gets the pretense of independence or the pretense of self-government with the specter of uh, imminent Japanese invasion overhead if you do something big that doesn't agree with Japanese strategic interests. And everywhere where the Japanese have a presence, they will have major economic concessions and uh, you know troops stationed on the ground in all of these countries. This includes the Philippines, the rest of the Dutch East Indies, Thailand, Indochina, and the reformed government of China, obviously. Hong Kong, it was said, would be slated to re be returned to China at a later date if conditions are in Japan's favor. Uh, that is uh, doublespeak for if the reformed government of China uh, is still around in eight years when the war's over and we're in charge of what's going on in China, then we'll feel comfortable giving Hong Kong back to the Chinese because it'll essentially not be Chinese. It'll be our puppet state. Uh, otherwise, Hong Kong would also be slated for assimilation like Taiwan and Korea. Where possible, this blueprint was basically adhered to, although obviously in a piecemeal and gradual fashion. However, the reality for most people under Japanese occupation at this late stage, we're not talking about Korea and Taiwan, you know, who have been long-standing colonies. The, the colonies that you uh, obtain, either formally or informally, uh, after 1937, for these eight years, and most of them are after 1940, just five years, okay? Um, the reality for most people is going to be military rule, uh, 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 insane exploitation of your natural resources and harsh wartime mobilization and the martial law and discipline that comes along with it, um, with a lot of punishments being doled out and extrajudicial extra means. One of the reasons that you never get sort of an opportunity for Japan to see could we have been good conscientious colonial rulers where we gave back something to the people like we did in Taiwan, um, you never get that opportunity because the Western powers fight back immediately. All right, war is instantly declared. And so this you know, war contingency situation is never lifted by the Japanese. All resources have to go to war and security there are very few available for general development. And anywhere where the, where the Japanese military occupies during these five years, um, there are few manufactured goods. There's almost no economic development. There's massive inflation. There's massive starvation. Um, you know, and many people will become quickly disillusioned with the Japanese, uh, sort of like that vicious cycle that we used to see in Korea. Perhaps there were some local elites who were inspired by the Japanese discourse of liberation and co-prosperity sphere at first, but then they oftentimes would quickly turn to anti-Japanese resistance once they saw the reality of what Japanese colonial rule would be like um, in a wartime circumstance. Okay, uh, pretty much you have pretty, uh, Japanese elites replacing Western elites at the top and promises for true liberation from the West were mostly on paper until after the war. Okay, uh, Japan never gets sort of a peacetime opportunity to see if it actually could have created a colonial rule that would have been a little more embraced by a larger po uh, 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 swath of the population. Instead, uh, you know, wartime mobilization, you take everything you can in order to fight the war that you ultimately are losing as well. Um, and many of these frustrations and lack of resources will be visited upon the local subjects and they'll rightly blame the Japanese for what's happening to them. One other thing that the Japanese will do, sort of an interesting side note, is they will undertake overt discrimination throughout Southeast Asia against the large Chinese and Indian diaspora communities throughout Southeast Asia, both mainland Southeast Asia, you know, Thailand, Vietnam, Burma, uh, Laos, and all those places, um, and in the island Southeast Asia, uh, Indonesia, Philippines, you know, these sorts of places. Um, the, the two largest diaspora expatriate communities where people have migrated out and have their own sort of, you know, Chinatowns, Indian towns, and these sorts of things um, are Chinese and Indian. There are huge Chinese and Indian communities all throughout uh, Southeast Asia. The Japanese will assume that these communities are disloyal until proven otherwise. 
um, because the Indians uh, are perceived as having come from uh, a, a Japanese, uh, Japanese, a British-ruled South Asia, um, and the Chinese obviously uh, come from China, and so they're all going to be predisposed to be hostile and thus disloyal to the Japanese, and they would usually be overtly discriminated against. Okay, um, one clear and enduring legacy of the Japanese wartime empire. When all else goes up in flames, all those ideals are gone and everyone's cynical and realizes the Japanese are largely in it for themselves. They're not going to invest in our land. Uh, all nice promises, nothing actually happened. Even when all that falls apart, there will be one clear and enduring legacy of the Japanese wartime empire. And that is the age of unapologetic Western empire is over. There is no going back to being ruled by people who have been humbled by the so-called lesser Asian race of the Japanese. Even when the Japanese themselves have shot themselves in the foot, figuratively, it's a terrible uh, analogy to use during wartime, uh, even when the Japanese have delegitimized their own enterprise and left, the legacy they leave is bigger than themselves. Um, it'll be that the age of Western empires is over. This is the first time that non-Europeans have repeatedly kicked the ass of European empires. White guys, white women, fleeing in tears, in fear, totally helpless, unable to do anything. POW camps of white people being watched over by Asians, Japanese with guns, those images are like, you know, what happened with Russian refugees after 1917 Bolshevik Revo Revolution times 30. All right, throughout much of Asia, the first time you ever saw white people really humbled and brought low was the Russian Revolution, in which people who uh, could not be reconciled to the communists who came to power uh, would become refugees throughout Asia and would beg on the streets. Uh, that was one of the first times that the aura of the invincible white man was punctured. Um, that's going to happen on a massive scale all throughout Asia with the Japanese invasion that occurred uh, from 1937 until 1945. And the Western powers will have to deal with this legacy uh, when they come back to the Asian region in 1945. Um, and some of the, these legacies will be seen most prominently in uh, places like Vietnam, which are pretty much going to be saying there's no going back um, to Western rule anymore. Um, you guys have been thoroughly delegitimized. De 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 you should have left when the Japanese kicked you out. Now, next time, war isn't everything. There's a lot going on behind the scenes, and we're going to pull back the curtain on all of Japan's wartime territories, some of which hardly experienced the war at all, like Taiwan. What's going on in Taiwan during the war? Uh, are, are, are they invaded? Are, Taiwan, are, are Taiwanese being conscripted into Japanese armies? What's the Chinese pol uh, Japanese policy? We've talked about um, sort of, you know, Taiwan and Korea going to be transferred to the home ministry, be totally assimilated. Uh, what, what, what does it actually mean? Um, please join me as we take a closer look at what is going on on the ground in those earliest colonies in late Japanese rule in Taiwan and Korea in episode 52 of Beyond Huaxia.